I graduated from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia in 1994. During my senior year, I took public speaking, a requirement for graduation. Dr. Ann Watts was the instructor. She taught oratory at Morehouse for 42 years before retiring in 2013. I took the class with one of my running buddies, Louis Bingham. Lou was also from New York, Queens, not Brooklyn, and was a history major too. We met during our freshman year, and over the next four years, we rolled through Morehouse together. There was no better study partner than Lou. He came to every study session prepared, and on those occasions when we had to pull an all-nighter, he always baked a cake, one as good as anything my grandma made. Public speaking with Dr. Watts was our last class together. After graduation, Lou stayed in Atlanta and attended law school at Emory, while I headed to North Carolina and enrolled in graduate school at Duke. Despite the distance, we remained fast friends. He was in my wedding and I was in his. The other day, I sent Lou a text. It read, public speaking, senior year, Dr. Ann Watts, Brawley Hall, 100. Lou Bingham's favorite poem of all time is, and three minutes later, he texted back, if we must die, Claude McKay. And then he sent a picture of the poem, framed and hanging in the entryway to his home. It was the same poem he recited for his final presentation for Dr. Watts, Claude McKay's If We Must Die, written in 1919. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men, we'll face the murderous cowardly pack pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. I text Lou back that I've been teaching that Claude McKay poem in my classes for 20 years. And every time I do, I introduce it by saying, this is my man Lou Bingham's favorite poem. Then I added, but all these years, I've never asked why that poem. Lou texts back, the message, you win some, and you lose some, and you might lose your life along the way. But don't let it be said you went out less than a man. Make them taste the pain and acknowledge and respect you even in your defeat. He added, 
It's about manhood and pride in black people. One needs the other. A poem written a century ago that inspired black people then to fight back against racial injustice continues to inspire black people now, like my brother Lou Bingham, to do the same. To understand the African-American experience during the Jim Crow era, as well as its lasting legacy, which stretches into the present, you have to understand the way black people made sense of the world. And one of the best ways to do so is through the work of Harlem Renaissance artists like Claude McKay. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. The artists, authors, and intellectuals of the Harlem Renaissance spoke truth to power about the realities of Jim Crow. It was a national movement, and their poems, plays, and paintings conveyed complex realities of struggle and resilience. Julie Buckner Armstrong is a scholar of Southern and civil rights literature. In this episode, she spoke with my co-host, Bethany J about the literary and artistic movements that followed the Civil War, placing the Harlem Renaissance within the longer tradition of black artistic expression. Dr. Julie Buckner Armstrong is a professor of English at the University of South Florida. We currently have about nine inches of snow and counting here in Massachusetts, so South Florida sounds pretty good. Uh, Dr. Armstrong is also the author of Mary Turner and the Memory of Lynching and co-editor of both the Civil Rights Reader and Teaching the American Civil Rights Movement. So we are so happy that you could bring your expertise on both teaching and literature to us today. I am thrilled to be here. This is one of my favorite podcast series. I use it all the time in my teaching. And as a side note, I also walk in the mornings and I use it to accompany my walk. So I get in many steps with these podcasts. (laughs) I can imagine. Before we can dive in to how to use literature to teach the Jim Crow era, it's appropriate to sort of get our bearings. Can you give us a sense of how the literature of this era is categorized or sort of understood as a whole? Yes. When we're talking about the Jim Crow era, roughly the 80 years between the Civil War and World War II, we're actually talking about three different literary moments. So the first one that I would identify is from the late 19th century through the early 20th, Reconstruction through World War I. We can look at the 20s, the Harlem Renaissance as another literary era. And then beginning in the 1930s through the 1950s, then we have a third one. 
So why don't we start by looking at this first literary period, Reconstruction through World War I. That is a period that uh, Charles Chestnut referred to as post-bellum pre-Harlem. There's an excellent uh, collection of the same title edited by Barbara McCaskill and Carolyn Gebhardt that points out how this period gets misunderstood. So on the one hand, these are the years in which the system of segregation that we call Jim Crow was developed and the lynching violence that reinforced those laws and customs was at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, conventional way of speaking about this time period or the 1890s especially is called the nadir or the low point of race relations in the United States. But on the other hand, these decades were an extraordinarily productive time culturally and politically. A recent podcast series by historian Kadada Williams uses the term seizing freedom mm-hmm. to refer to the work of uh, defining new forms of black identity in this post-slavery environment. And literary scholar Caritha Mitchell has another very useful term, homemade citizenship, that describes how African Americans developed strategies that fostered success and civic belonging within an otherwise hostile environment. And of course, uh, Kadada Williams has a episode on this season of the podcast about lynching. So Yes, she does. Uh, so folks can go back and listen to that. What are some of the authors that we might associate with this postbellum pre-Harlem period? Well, they include authors Chestnut, Charles Chestnut, poet Paul Arntz Dunbar, journalist Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. activist and writer Francis Harper, educator Booker T. Washington, and the philosopher W.E.B. Du Bois. So these are just some of the figures that were creating the intellectual and cultural conditions for freedom to flower. Hmm. And then after that early period and the nadir, is that when we get into what we think of as the Harlem Renaissance? Yes. This movement, the Harlem or New Negro Renaissance, basically of the 1920s, was a branch of modernism, which was the dominant artistic movement of the 20th century's first half, where an international experimentation with new forms of representation tried to capture what was perceived as a break with an older traditional world's way of seeing and thinking and being. For African Americans during the 1920s, that creative energy coalesced in Harlem, which was filled chock-a-block with (laughs) black cultural workers. And for those of us who just dabble in literature, these are the names that are going to be familiar to us that we associate with the Harlem Renaissance. It's many of the big names. Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, Nella Larson, County Cullen, Jean Toomer, Jesse Fawcett, just to name a few. Um, In other arts, uh, you have artist Aaron Douglas, dancer Josephine Baker, political activist Marcus Garvey, jazz composer Duke Ellington, blues woman Betsy Smith, so many. History teachers are used to teaching the word renaissance as meaning rebirth. Is that a good way to think about the Harlem Renaissance? Is it really a rebirth of Black culture? Well, yes and no. Elaine Locke, who edited the 1925 anthology, The New Negro, which uh, the era sometimes takes its name from this, spoke of these years as a spiritual coming of age. And the very word that he uses, new, signals a break from something defined as old. Mm. But on the other hand, many figures traditionally associated with this renaissance, such as Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, Alice Dunbar Nelson, Angelina Well Grimke, have been giving voice to a complex and beautiful and powerful black identity long before the 1920s. So it's 
not so much a break from older mm-hmm. forms of expression and ways of thinking, but a building on earlier ideas. Mm. And we generally think about the Harlem Renaissance as sort of coming to an end as we get into the Great Depression. So what follows in the 30s and 40s from the Harlem Renaissance? You know, the way that I would think about this is to paraphrase Charles Chestnut and call it a post-Harlem pre-Black arts movement period. And it's defined variously as focusing on urban realism or social protest, where writers uh, took a good hard look at some of the gritty realities of poverty, violence, and injustice. And as the nation plunged into the Great Depression and another world war, the idea that the art should directly engage social issues began to dominate. So for this 1930s and 40s period, who are we thinking about when we're talking about key writers and artists? Some of my favorites include Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, also very big names, Mm -hmm. uh, Dorothy West, Ann Petrie, Alice Childress, whose play Trouble in Mind is now being staged on Broadway. So exciting times. Um, But also emerging in these decades and, you know, continuing into the 50s and 60s were writers such as James Baldwin and Gwendolyn Brooks. Mm. And their work would come to define literature of the civil rights era, which was a topic we covered in season three of Teaching Hard History. That's right. This is Teaching Hard History, and I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources as well as a full transcript complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org slash podcast. Let's return now to Bethany's conversation with Julie Buckner Armstrong. We've thought a little bit about the individual periods, but how can teachers use the distinctions between these different periods for the way that these periods built on one another in the classroom to help their students make sense of this period? Right. It's important to think about these different forms of expression and how they dominate at different moments. And situating a science text historically and artistically, I think, helps to better understand how they work as literary artifacts and how they respond to their particular historical moments. So the ways that writers approach topics such as Jim Crow violence, there are continuities across time, but they can also shift over time. Can you give us an example of a particular set of texts that work well for thinking about that issue? So a poem such as Dunbar's The Haunted Oak from the late 19th, early 20th century, postbellum, pre-Harlem era, it makes a political statement that addresses lynching. But this is a very different kind of poem from Richard Wright's 1935 poem, Between the World and Me, which is from a different literary period. Wright focuses on the gruesome details, and that's just something that a writer from Dunbar's time period is not going to do. So why don't we take a look at Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, The Haunted Oak. And this is a poem about a lynching, like many from that era, that is trying to humanize the victims. Mm. You know, lynching itself is the ultimate act of dehumanization. So Dunbar narrates this poem from the perspective of the tree in which a lynching victim hangs. The tree is looking at the victim with 
compassion, foregrounding his humanity. I saw in the moonlight dim and weird a guiltless victim's pains. I bent me down to hear his sigh. I shook with his gurgling moan, and I trembled sore when they rode away and left him here alone. They charged him with the old, old crime and set him fast in jail. Oh, why does the dog howl all night long, and why does the night wind wail? He prayed his prayer, and he swore his oath, and he raised his hands to the sky, but the beat of hoofs smote on his ear as the steady tread drew nigh. Hmm. And I would like to just read a portion of the final stanzas from Between the World and Me by Richard Wright. And then they had me, stripped me, battering my teeth into my throat till I swallowed my own blood. Mm. My voice was drowned in the roar of their voices, and my black, wet body slipped and rolled in their hands as they bound me to the sapling. And my skin clung to the bubbling hot tar, falling from me in limp patches. And the down and the quills of the white feathers sank into my raw flesh, and I moaned in my agony. Then my blood was cooled mercifully, cooled by a baptism of gasoline. And in a blaze of red, I leaped to the sky as pain rose like water, boiling my limbs, panting, mm. begging. I clutched childlike, clutched to the hot sides of death. Now I am dry bones and my face a stony skull, staring in yellow surprise at the sun. In this one, you see, again... Wright is trying to humanize his victim, but he also wants you as the reader to envision quite directly the horror of lynching. It creates this sense of horror, of disgust. You know, it makes you upset. And Mm -hmm. from that emotional place, it intends to spur you as the reader to some kind of social action. Yeah. As a side note, in episode three of this podcast series, which you alluded to before, Professor Williams does a great job of addressing how teachers from different grade levels can confront difficult topics such as explicit violence. Mm -hmm. And this is very much a gruesome poem and probably too much for students in earlier grades, but I don't think so much for high school students. I think they're able to handle this. Mm Mm-hmm. Those are great examples of how the periodization of Jim Crow in terms of literature changes the way that it engages with the same history. Right. Indeed, it does. So how would you approach these two poems in your own classroom with your students? That's a very good question. I think if I were looking at each one individually for Dunbar, I would focus on, you know, the regularity of the verse. With this pre-Harlem Renaissance poem, it's a very regular rhyme scheme and meter, Mm. whereas when one gets into the 1920s with the experimentation and form, so forth, we get fewer and fewer poems that are more traditional in this way. I think an exception is Claude McKay's, who often uses the sonnet form, Mm -hmm. but Dunbar is definitely the product of an earlier pre-1920s literary moment. So I would look at it formally first and have teachers ask their students, 
how does this poem work as a poem? Mm-hmm. You know, how, is, how does it form a sense of, of regularity? But out of that regularity, how does this image of a lynching explode and mm-hmm. destroy that sort of comforting feel right, of right. the rhyme and the rhythm? And how does this act as a kind of disjuncture yeah. from the formal qualities of the poem, the juxtaposition of the meter and the rhyme and the emotion of the image. Yeah. With Richard Wright, I would do something very similar. Uh, it's it's not a poem that is formal. It's almost, you could even cast this as a kind of prose poem, you know, in the lineation and the meter and the rhyme. Why is Wright moving away from the regularity of poetry? It's not because he doesn't know how to rhyme or he doesn't know Mm -hmm. how to use the meter. (laughs) You know, it's a conscious aesthetic choice to do something that's much more fragmentary, that's much more open-ended. How does this free verse poem how does that format help readers to approach the question very differently? But it's definitely a formal literary production here because there are some very conscious images. We have the quills of the white feathers. Mm. How is he using imagery of whiteness here Mm. and you know how does he use other colors like red and what's the effect of something like that so i would approach this as a literary artifact and think about the juxtaposition between you know some of the poem's formal qualities and the subject matter right Mm -hmm. but to put these two into comparison and i think this is really good with older students, first of all, because the, you know, the right poem is is definitely more appropriate for them than it is for, for, say, middle schoolers. Right. But it's also a higher level critical thinking skill Mm -hmm. (laughs) to compare and contrast Mm -hmm. rather than just to strictly, you know, analyze. So if you put these two poems in conversation with one another, how do they work to create emotion or kind of feeling in you as a reader, and how do they work differently? Mm -hmm. If you want to get even higher level thinking skills, how does that feeling that the poem creates in you, how is that dependent upon, you know, historical circumstances or aesthetic practices of the time or rhetorical possibilities? There are things that Richard Wright could say as a writer in 1935 that were just not appropriate in the 1890s. You know, there was language that people could use that they did not in an, an era that was much more formal or traditional. Right. A very important side note here is that the title of this poem by Richard Wright, Between the World and Me, is where contemporary author Ta-Nehisi Coates takes his own title for a 2015 book that is about navigating the new Jim Crow. So, again, these continuities occur between literary moments that show them as building upon one another. I'm glad that you mentioned continuities because we we focused on Dunbar and Wright as an example of change that occurs across these literary periods. But there's also some significant continuities across these three periods. Could you talk with us a little bit about those? Certainly. 
And great segue, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Continuities do exist across these three different time periods. So, for instance, writers help us imagine other possibilities beyond Jim Crow. So many, like Richard Wright and James Baldwin, did this very literally. They relocated to places like Paris. But, you know, what about speculative fiction or Afrofuturism, two modes that are very popular with students these days? But they're not just contemporary forms, right? So there's a brilliantly satiric 1931 novel by George Schuyler titled Black No More, which looks at what happens when a scientist develops a process for turning black people white. Hmm. So I think students might, you know, find that interesting as well. Another point, and this is one I get from literary scholar Caritha Mitchell's recent books, is writers responding to Jim Crow, not necessarily creating a literature of social protest, but providing models of success. And this could be, you know, writers from the late 19th century, you know, the 1920s, or even more contemporary figures. Mitchell looks at Michelle Obama. So she takes Mm. it from someone like Frances Harper to Michelle Obama in her book. So people are providing these models. So think about the ways that someone like Hurston creates spaces of black joy, Mm -hmm. love, and freedom. She acknowledges racism in her work. And, you know, you can think about a short story like The Gilded Six Bits, where that comes in at the end. But the primary focus of that story is not racism. It's the deepening relationship of the young newlyweds, Missy May and Joe. Hmm. Similarly, in Their Eyes Are Watching God, now this is clearly set in the Jim Crow South, but the plot centers on its main character, Janie's quest for a relationship that's romantic, that's based in equal partnership, and that values her desire to be a strong, independent woman. That's interesting. Is there anything specific from Their Eyes Are Watching God, for example, that might exemplify that point? There is a marvelous passage about midway through their eyes were watching God, where the protagonist, Janie, has a realization about herself and her relationships. Right before this passage, she had been listening to the storytellers on the front porch, which is the central gathering place of their community. They're telling stories about a man named Matt Bonner and his mule, and the mule is very much mistreated. And Janie begins to identify with the mule as a mistreated human being. Right after listening to the story of the mule, She begins to stand up to her husband, Jody, Joe Starks, and afterwards, she has this realization. It's almost as if her idealized version of her husband falls down, and she is able to see things much more clearly, and it's a moment of self-awareness for her. I'll just read that passage. Great. Janie stood where he left her for unmeasured time and thought. She stood there until something fell off the shelf inside her. Then she went inside there to see what it was. It was her image of Jody tumbled down and shattered. But looking at it, she saw that it never was the flesh and blood figure of her dreams, just something she had grabbed up to drape her dreams over. In a way, she turned her back upon the image where it lay and looked further. She had no more blossomy openings dusting pollen over her man, neither any glistening young fruit where the petals used to be. She found that she had a host of thoughts she had never expressed to him and numerous emotions she had never let Jody know about. 
things packed up and put away in parts of her heart where he could never find them. She was saving up feelings for some man she had never seen. She had an inside and an outside now, and suddenly she knew how not to mix them. And then right after she has this realization, she takes a bath, she puts on a fresh dress and a fresh head kerchief, and it's almost like with the new clothes, there is a new woman. Yeah. Hurston is writing a novel about a black woman's quest for freedom and independence. And in this section, you clearly see how... Janie is coming into awareness of herself as an independent woman, separate from her husband. And Hurston says in that passage, she was saving up her feelings for some man she had never seen. And that's ultimately what comes to pass is that shortly after that, Janie's husband passes away, which paves the way for a new man to come into her life with whom she has this equal partnership that is joyful for both of them. So again, Hurston is providing these kinds of alternative ways to be that aren't necessarily grounded in the Jim Crow experience. Right. And they're not just not grounded in the Jim Crow experience, but they're also moving apart from a patriarchal way of thinking about both women and men. Learning for Justice has a special opportunity just for educators. After listening to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, identity all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. We've talked about three literary moments, and that does cover quite a lot of ground, especially Mm -hmm. for one podcast. So why don't we, you know, do a deep dive into the Harlem Renaissance? It's just such a popular period. It's it's highly teachable, um, and it's a great way for students to learn about, you know, realities of Jim Crow while also seeing a range of the Black experience that's, you know, beyond the hard history. Great. Um, What are the literary beginnings or ends of that period, knowing that these things are always a bit fluid? The Harlem Renaissance, you know, the period's typically dated from 1919 to 1929. It's linked to historical moments, the post-World War I years to the Great Depression. You know, typically one dates the Harlem Renaissance from the publication in 1919 of Claude McKay's poem, If We Must Die. It's kind of an opening salvo, I guess you might say. It speaks to that defiant spirit of the new Negro that Locke identified and also to the Jim Crow violence that exploded in what James Wella Johnson called, you know, the 1919 Red Summer because of blood flowing in the streets. Mm-hmm. So much racial violence during that time period. And as far as the end of the Harlem Renaissance, many people link that to the Great Depression's falling economic opportunities, especially as they impacted writers and artists. But, you know, this time period can be difficult to pinpoint. 
It's not as if, you know, someone got together in 1919 and said, hey, great war's over. (laughs) Now we're all going to be modernist. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is probably one of the most frequently taught novels of the Harlem Renaissance, was published in 1937. That's just one year before Richard Wright's Uncle Tom's Children, which was clearly a product of the social protest era. Mm, Gotcha. So they're not these discrete moments in time. Yes, not at all. And they're not all in Harlem. Not all of these authors and artists are located in Harlem, too, correct? You are quite correct. You know, Harlem was a geographic center, like, you know, maybe Paris was for modernism. But these ideas and these forms of expression that writers were employing are much more general and widespread. People like Hughes and McKay, they traveled uh, the world. They saw themselves as citizens of the world. It's important to note Washington, D.C. was also quite central Mm -hmm. because of figures like Elaine Locke and uh, writer Georgia Douglas Johnson, who ran these literary salons that were a very important place of artistic conversation and thought. Here in Florida, (laughs) we love our Zora Neale Hurston. We also love our James Weldon Johnson, who, you know, has a a scene in his novel Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man about cigar rolling in Tampa. And so, of course, we talk about that in our classrooms and, you know, use it to say it's, it's the Harlem Renaissance, but it's happening everywhere. I was thinking before about the possibilities of interdisciplinary work between English and, and, you know, social studies teachers for this moment. And as we're thinking about uh, this period in a kind of interdisciplinary unit, as it were, what factors are really influencing the Harlem Renaissance authors, both both within and outside of the literary world? Right. I think we we might start to answer that question by looking at a couple of historical links. So uh, first, the Great Migration, which uh, your podcast series dealt with very well in episode seven, one of my favorites. So here you have millions of African Americans beginning in the 19-teens migrating from the Jim Crow South to urban centers north and west and the Midwest. Um, so a place like Harlem, which, you know, is small area, it's about three square miles. Miles, developed a critical mass of black people and black talent that became a, a, a percolator for for the arts, right? Yeah. Another historical link that I would make would be to World War One, which you dealt with in episode nine. Mm-hmm. You know, after the war is over, you have black soldiers returning from the front and from experiences beyond the brutal violence and segregation that they faced in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they brought with them this fighting spirit that spread outward to that spiritual coming of age that Locke called it. I would also like to note from a literary perspective that there was a significant increase in Black-focused means of publication. So organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League had magazines that featured Black writers. Uh, The NAACP's Crisis, the Urban League's Opportunity, uh, are just two examples of of many publication venues uh, for emerging writers. Publications such as Locke's New Negro uh, included not just writing, but visual arts like Aaron Douglas. There was a short-lived but very important magazine, Fire, which was founded by Hurston, Hughes, Cullen, Bruce Nugent, artist Aaron Douglas, among others. And 
it's uh, many different literary forms. There are, there are plays, there's poetry, there's essay, and some very stunning visual works by Aaron Douglas. And I think it's important to note that anthologies like The New Negro and Fire, both of which you should be able to find online, are great teaching tools because of the way that they blend writing with the other arts. They're they're in conversation with one another. They're not discrete or isolated products. Mm-hmm. You know, I might also mention alongside of this, uh, James Weldon Johnson's God's Trombones, which uh, is a uh, collections of what he calls uh, sermons in verse. And those two are illustrated by Aaron Douglas. So you frequently, one frequently sees the visual and the literary working in concert with one another. Yeah, so it sounds like there's both this historical context and cultural context, but then there's also the infrastructure of publication and money, you know, behind this moment that helps it to flourish. Yes, and that infrastructure, some of it is developed by uh, wealthy patrons, many of them white, like Carl Van Vechten and Charlotte Osgood Mason, who financed and promoted the work of Black artists like Hurston and Hughes. But, you know, some of it is also developed, you know, by African-Americans for African-Americans. It's Mm -hmm. about keeping the voice and even keeping the money within the black community. And that becomes even more especially true as one moves into, say, the black arts movement. But this was happening in the Harlem Renaissance as well. What makes the Harlem Renaissance work in the classroom so well? That is a great question. I have two answers to it. So first of all, this period produced a large amount of literature that's both beautifully written and accessible for broad audiences. Uh, It's not like some of the the other modernist productions, say, by uh, Picasso or T.S. Eliot, you know, that one has to be educated into (laughs) to understand. Uh (laughs) So it's infinitely teachable, right? Mm. a, a second thing that makes it work is that, you know, we might look at the Harlem Renaissance years as a as a great time of questioning, exploration, experimentation, and boundary testing. And I think that speaks to young people in particular. Young minds tend to be more open and are developing, asking questions themselves, exploring. Mm-hmm. That's why they find it fascinating. As the mother of a teenager, I can uh, sympathize with boundary testing. Uh, yes. <laughs> can you give us some yes. specifics that, that sort of work in the classroom f- to help our students understand the experimentation and perhaps identify with some of the experimentation and testing that's happening in the Harlem Renaissance? Yes, certainly. Uh, you know, the, the Renaissance and then uh, modernism more generally was, was all about breaking taboos. We know our young people love to do this. So uh-huh. it's all about breaking taboos, you know, pushing boundaries uh, of identity and artistic form. You know, you have a writer like Gene Toomer, who saw himself primarily among modernism's avant-garde. And, you know, he circulated in New York's Greenwich Village. He he also uh, was part of uh, those D.C. circles, of uh, Georgia Douglas Johnson and others. The major work that Toomer produced in 1923, the book Cain, blends poetry, fiction, and a form that they call the closet drama, which means that it has dramatic elements, but it's meant to be read rather than performed. 
This sort of hybrid format with its fragmentary style was, I think, very indicative of the era and not something that writers were doing prior to the 20th century. So they're, they're figuring out new ways of writing that respond to what they perceive as a new world. And along with the writing, Toomer, along with many others, was not just questioning literature <laughs> and what it could do and what it should do, but questioning conventional notions of race, uh, racial and sexual identity. Mm. So Toomer defined himself outside of constructed boundaries. And in his letters, he, he famously says two quotes. Uh, one is about sexual identity. He says, I am neither male nor female nor in between. And, you know, with regard to race, he said, I am of no particular race. I am of the human race. So this is definitely questioning these these boundaries about what it means to be not just an artist, but a person. Yeah. Sounds like it could have been written, you know, last week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, the writing of this time period speaks to ours. Yeah. It can be a fun classroom exercise for teachers to just put in a poem from the time period and not give students the author or the title or the context mm -hmm. and just ask them when it was written. Yeah. <laughs> very often they'll say, oh, I think this, you know, was from this past year. It's like, well, no, that's 100 years ago. <laughs> so uh, just to to add to that, I would, you know, direct listeners to uh, Della Larson's novel Passing, mm. which deals with a character who's black but lives as a white woman, and an extremely popular film version on Netflix. Yes. So it obviously speaks to these notions of identity that we're, you know, thinking about in our own era as well. And in this moment, it's really interesting to be able to explore some of those overlapping, you know, those intersections of gender and sexuality and sexual expression, because it's so much a part of what kids in particular are grappling with uh, today. Yes. So can you can you give us a couple examples of, of good resources to use for those particular topics? Oh, yes. These were important topics and conversations that people were having in the 1920s as well. So, you know, drag balls were all the rage in mm -hmm. Harlem clubs. Um, in Fire, that anthology I mentioned before, Bruce Nugent has an openly gay short story, uh, Smoke, Lilies, and Jade. Blues woman Ma Rainey has a song, Prove It On Me Blues, where she, she sings, I'm not going to sing, however, I'll just read <laughs> the text. She says, it's true, I wear a collar and tie. And then in another section, she says, I went out last night with a crowd of my friends. It must have been women because I don't like no men. Hmm. Wear my clothes just like a fan. Talk to the gals just like any old man. Oh, interesting. My colleague teaches with that song, and I know he learned about it from the first episode of Queer America, where Daniel Hurwitz uh, has a very good discussion about how to teach with Ma Rainey. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I would love to look that up. Well, and in, in addition to these terrific resources that will resonate, I think, so powerfully with our students, are there other go-to sort of online resources that our listeners can use to pull up some material for the classroom? 
Yes, one of my favorites is from the National Humanities Center, which has a website on the making of African-American identity from 1917 to 1968. And this site offers specific teaching tools and, and classroom exercises. In addition to the National Humanities Center materials, the Jim Crow Museum out of Ferris State University has curriculum materials that link to its very amazing and eye-opening collections. Uh, PBS has a great site for grades 7 through 12 on both the Harlem Renaissance and Jim Crow. Columbia University has a Harlem Renaissance curriculum guide for grades 6 through 8. Uh, Library of Congress has some very good visuals and documents. And of course, the best teaching toolkit I know of is found at learningforjustice.org. And for those who are listening, we will link to any resources that we talk about in, uh, in this episode in the show notes. Can you walk us through some of your go-to assignments for teaching the literature of the Harlem Renaissance? That is a, a very big question <laughs> that one could answer in many ways. We could do a whole other ep- uh, series of episodes on it, I'm sure. Yes, we could. So for today, I think I might focus on one text, which is one of my favorite poems. Uh, Langston Hughes's 1925 I2, and look at the ways that a teacher could scaffold up different assignments. I2 by Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. You know, using this point, we can almost follow Bloom's taxonomy of learning. Mm -hmm. So on that first lower tier, there's understanding or that basic tier, uh, understanding. And second, you can, you know, move into analysis, you know, more basic to more complex forms of analysis. And then as you're getting into those upper levels of learning, you're looking at creative and critical application. So, you know, one can use the strategy for all grade levels, depending on how far in the scaffolding process one wants to go. Mm. So in teaching this poem on those first two analytical levels, you know, you can start by reading it and just appreciating it, you know, just listen and hear the beauty of the poem. Or, you know, one can move up and analyze its literary elements. So who is the speaker and what is the situation? How does eating in the kitchen operate as a metaphor of segregation? What does it mean for the speaker to say at the beginning, I sing America versus the end when he says, I am America. So there's a repetition with a twist that, you know, has a lot of meaning that students can talk about. Taking the analysis a step further, what historical events or other artistic works is the poem in dialogue with? I called this assignment text in context. And so I look at text in a broader historical and literary context. So obviously this poem is a response to Jim Crow, and it offers a good way to introduce the time period's racial divisions and attitudes, as well as resistance to Jim Crow. In terms of artistic dialogue, the first line of I, Too is an allusion to Walt Whitman's 1855 poem, I Hear America Singing. Mm. 
Hughes's poem is in free verse, and Walt Whitman was one of the first poets in the U.S. to employ this form. But Whitman's poem also presents a very idealized version of the United States, where many different voices come together equally to create the great American song. Now, Hughes is both critical of the idealized America and also hopeful that one day that idealized America will come into being. Mm. And then publication date, I would imagine, is also important. Yes, and that's a a next level that I would take the analysis of this poem. I would take it up to the next level by looking at its publication history. You know, with any text, you know, where is it published and by whom and why? So I, too, first appeared in a March 1925 issue of the magazine Survey Graphic, which was called, uh, the special issue was called Harlem, Mecca of the New Negro. And that was a, a precursor to Elaine Locke's collection, his anthology, The New Negro, where it was also republished there as well. So, you know, I would ask students, you know, how does I too embody the spirit of the new Negro? You know, Hughes says, they've sent me to the kitchen, but I'm going to be there laughing and Mm -hmm. eating well and growing strong. We can think of the kitchen as a segregated space, but, you know, it's also where the food is. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) so, you know, how does it embody the spirit of the new Negro? And um, what else appeared in Survey Graphic or in Locke's anthology alongside Hughes? And, you know, what can we learn from how these texts interact? So I think looking at that publication history in that context is also very important to get a richer, deeper understanding of what's happening in the literary text. I think the fact that I, too, isn't visually intimidating must also help to sort of get students engaged with it. I know when I give my students like a very long source to look at, I feel like sometimes they just kind of turn off. They, they're intimidated by it. But when you give them something that doesn't look intimidating, then they're more prone to kind of engage with it. Yes, they can just give a a visual glance on the page and see, oh, this is a short poem. And they think, (laughs) oh, it must be easy. (laughs) (laughs) I won't have any trouble with this assignment. But, you know, going deeper and deeper into it, you see how a short poem can really pack a punch. Have a lot of depth. Yeah. For younger classes, what strategies might work to engage them with this kind of content in the classroom? Well, you know, for younger grades, I mean, I remember being in first and second grade and my teachers reading to me and, you know, I loved being read to, you know, with younger audiences, you don't necessarily have to do a deep dive into the analysis. They respond to the beauty of the language. And I'm thinking about my son's experience as a learner. In third and fourth grade, this is where his teachers were teaching him about metaphor and simile and poetic elements or literary elements such as this. So you can do that with, you know, Langston Hughes. You know, it has the foundational elements of literary analysis in very approachable ways to them. By the time you get into middle school with students, then you can think about some of these other issues about, well, when was this poem published and how is it part of a movement and how does it compare to other works and contrast with other works? And, you know, how is someone like Hughes 
responding to someone like Walt Whitman and what does it mean for him to, you know, quote Walt Whitman and sort of riff off of that and create his own literary work. Mm -hmm. So keeping with that I too conversation, a different and more creative assignment I use all the time in my college classes is also easily adaptable to lower grades. And I call the assignment I too am America and It's very popular. Students love it. So um, what I ask them to do is to interview elders. And by that, I, you know, mean grandparents or community members. You know, uh, it's unfortunate sometimes with our younger students that they see an elder as someone who's in their 30s, (laughs) but, (laughs) you know, whatever, (laughs) but someone older, right? And, you know, record stories of, you know, family or community practices or sayings or songs or, you know, gather photos, gather recipes, things like that. It's, it's kind of like an oral history, but not as in-depth and, you know, something that focuses on forms of expression, right? So, um, basically, you're asking them to think like Zora or think like Hurston to, you know, follow Hurston's anthropological model of, you know, participant, observer, recorder. And, you know, you can also find a lot of examples of her work uh, online uh, in this mode. But, you know, have students interview people. um, And then after the interviews and the gathering of materials, you know, get your class, uh, class, uh, your students to write up their work and collect it into a book form. It can be print or online, whatever. Um, and maybe adding accompanying music and art. So you're getting into the spirit of the Harlem Renaissance and that yeah. interdisciplinarity of it. Um, Again, going back to Locke and the New Negro Anthology or that magazine Fire, they're both great examples of of how, you know, those different forms can work in collaboration. And, you know, what I like about this assignment is that students, then they have a tangible takeaway from the class, you know, plus a sense of accomplishment and plus a celebration of their diverse experiences as individuals. And, Honestly, I think this insistence upon the inclusion rather than segregation of diverse voices into the broader American story is ultimately what the Harlem Renaissance was all about. That celebration of identity provides a direct counter to the challenges of Jim Crow, old and new. I can't think of a better way to end than on that note. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. This was such a pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. I did too. I learned a lot as well. (laughs) Well, as a listener, I continue to learn from these podcasts. It's wonderful. Julie Buckner Armstrong is a professor of literature at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. She is the editor of The Civil Rights Reader, American Literature from Jim Crow to Reconciliation, as well as the Cambridge Companion to American Civil Rights Literature. Dr. Armstrong is also the author of Mary Turner and the Memory of Lynching, which received an honorable mention for the C. Hugh Holman Award from the Society for the Study of Southern Literature. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. 
you can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Dr. Buckner Armstrong for sharing her insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University and your host for Teaching Hard History.